The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Vinnie Politan, and welcome to the Court TV Podcast. This week, we have an audio edition of our original series, Judgment with Ashley Banfield, where we look at the biggest cases straight from the Court TV archives. This case goes way back to the 1960s, the Helter Skelter murders. The infamous Charles Manson and several of his followers were sentenced to death in a series of murders, including actress Sharon Tate and her unborn child. Many thought this horrific story would end there, but when California abolished the death penalty, making parole an option, Manson took center stage once again, featuring interviews with former L.A. County Deputy District Attorney Stephen Kay, author George Stimson, and attorney Rich Pfeiffer. This is Judgment of Charles Manson. This is the Court TV Podcast. Someone has to carry insanity. Someone's got to be insane. Someone's got to be the bad guy. Violence is no new thing to me. And people getting hurt around me is no new thing. I've lived in prison all my life. That happens all the time. You see nine dead people. That's not even a tip of it. That just set one little blaze to this thing that you call Helter Skelter. Charles Manson, one of the most notorious figures in the history of American crime. His name alone conjures up visions of pure evil and evokes sheer terror. On August 8th, 1969, he set in motion two nights of ghastly and gruesome murders that repulsed the country and shocked the world. Manson and his followers, known as The Family, would ultimately kill nine innocent people. One of them, Sharon Tate, a stunning young actress who was just coming into her own and was only two weeks away from giving birth. She was the wife of famed director Roman Polanski, who was overseas on the night that his family would be met with horror. Charles Manson's seven-month trial was a circus, with his deranged philosophy and his crazed cult followers on full display. And while no cameras were allowed in the courtroom, the drama is well documented. What was captured on camera are the parole hearings of not just Charles Manson, but his family members, Patricia Krenwinkel and Leslie Van Houten. Those hearings happened more than 20 years later, and what you're about to see, some of you for the very first time, may be the only video record that describes what actually happened that bloody week in August, more than 50 years ago. You talk about the summer of love, and that was 1967. We're talking about 1969, and a lot happened in two years. 1968 in particular was a tumultuous year with RFK getting killed and Martin Luther King getting killed and the Chicago riots and all the other things going on. I mean, revolution was a real thought in a lot of people's mind that it was going to happen. On the day of August 9th, 1969, a day that will live in infamy, they sent me to Orange County Airport to meet President Nixon. 
I called in. I said he had arrived. They said, forget about the president. Get in here as fast as you can. There's been a horrible mass murder. In a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religious rite, five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman Polyansky. This house that was cordoned off by the police, it was on Cielo Drive, and we didn't know who lived there. It wasn't until a few hours later that the police announced the victims. Miss Tate, who starred in Valley of the Dolls, was eight months pregnant and was found in a bikini-type nightgown with a rope around her neck attached to the body of a man. Among the other victims were Hollywood hairstylist Jay Sebring and coffee heiress Abigail Folger. One officer summed up the murders when he said, in all my years, I have never seen anything like this before. The crime scene was horrendous and the stab wounds were just unbelievable. Well, at the scene, we had one body in a vehicle near the gate, a man and a woman in the main room, and a man and a woman on the lawn in front of the house, all deceased. On the front door was in Sharon's blood, the word P-I-G. The town was in terror, absolute terror, particularly the entertainment industry, because it looked like they were attacking the entertainment industry. Bob Evans said he was going to go to Sharon's house that night, and Dennis Hopper said he was going to get there. Steve McQueen was also going to go, but according to Steve, he set out on his motorcycle, and then on the way to the house, he picked up a hitchhiker, beautiful young lady, and decided to change his plans. So he never got there. I went into the bureau and I worked all night. It was midnight, and the city news ticker suddenly jumped to life, and it said there had been another two murders. Lino LaBianca was the grocery store owner, and his wife was Rosemary LaBianca. They were totally innocent victims. The killers had written, in blood of the victims, helter-skelter, piggies, stuff like that, on the doors and on the walls. Everybody thought that it was a copycat. It was very similar. There were blood scrawlings on the walls. And police had nothing. They had no clues to who had done this. With all due respect, I think they were a Keystone Cops operation. Because there was a feud between the LAPD and the LA Sheriffs, they never spoke to each other. And the only way the cops solved the case was because Blabbermouth Susan Atkins, who was a member of the Manson family, boasted to her cellmates, hey, you know who killed Sharon Tate? I did. And then repeated it to the grand jury. And once the grand jury heard it, they indicted Manson and the rest of the gang. Charlie had come with quite a bit of publicity before he even got to L.A. If you remember a Life magazine portrait of him with the crazy hair and the eyes, and we thought this was Svengali who was coming. And in walks this little guy, like five foot three. The girls were Leslie Van Houten, Susan Atkins, and Patricia Krenwinkel. Charles Tex Watson, who was also a key figure in the murders, managed to stay in Texas and was not extradited until after the trial. The Manson women were camped on the sidewalk outside the Hall of Justice, the women who had lived at the ranch, and they were saying they would remain there until Manson was freed 
They slept there and lived there. On the first day of the trial, Squeaky was sitting outside the courtroom, and as I approached, she said, hi, Ivor, because by that time she knew me. And she said in a kind of little girl, squeaky voice, do you know what it feels like to have a sharp knife put down your throat? It was an incredible circus, and it made the trial itself very bizarre. Charlie jumped over the table with a pencil in his hand and was going after Judge Older, and a young bailiff tackled him. Later, the judge told me that he had a gun up there and would use that if necessary. And hey, the judge was a flying tiger ace in World War II. He was nobody to mess with. We always wondered during the trial why the girls were so high, up, singing. We discovered that when the girls were sent new dresses by other girls who were out there, like Squeaky, they had sewed tabs of LSD into the hems of the dresses. Quite clever. Manson was clearly the mastermind, and that's what we had to prove at the trial, that these women were basically automatons and would do anything uh, at his beck and call. Two years ago, the hippie commune led by Charles Manson moved it into this old Wild West film set just outside Los Angeles. I went to the Spahn Movie Ranch, and there were a couple of guys there called Paul Watkins and Brooks Poston, and they said to me that Manson told them that the Beatles' White Album were secret messages to him, Charlie, to tell the family that there was going to be a black-white revolution. <laughs> Helter Skelter was what Manson called the upcoming race war that was prophesied to him through the Bible, through Beatles lyrics, and what he predicted was that the blacks were going to finally rise up against the oppressive whites and wipe them out and then take over the planet. I thought, what a bunch of rubbish. And the amazing thing is that seven months later, I sit in court and Vincent Bugliosi, the prosecutor, stands up and uses this Beatles made me do it as the nucleus of his case. And I'm still sitting there thinking the jury is not going to believe this claptrap, but they did. The jury found all of them guilty and sentenced them to death. The death penalty was overturned in uh, 1972 by the California Supreme Court. So every one of these defendants had their sentence commuted from death to life. Good afternoon, Mr. Manson. Would you have your seat, please? Today, Mr. Manson, the panel from the Board of Prison Terms that you see before you will once again consider your suitability for parole. Charlie Manson decided he was a celebrity. He was the kind of 20th century Jack the Ripper. I'm an outlaw. That's, they're right there, you know, and I'm a gangster and I'm bad and I'm all the things that, uh, that uh, I want to be. I'm pretty free within myself. I cut people and I shoot them and I... I do whatever I have to do to survive in the world I live in. He's the monster in our living room, and we are being entertained by him, and Charlie knew how to entertain. I cheat if it comes to where I need to cheat, and I steal if I need to steal. If I'm too hungry and I can't feel it any other way, I'll do whatever I can do to survive, just like I've always done. The 1992 Manson parole hearings exploded into a media frenzy. For many, this was their first exposure to Manson. At times, he was articulate, 
even comedic. At other times, he was classic Manson, repulsive and babbling. The public's appetite for Manson seemed to be insatiable. But just as quickly as the parole hearings appeared, they were gone. Until now. These excerpts from the hearings provide a haunting glimpse into the deranged and twisted mind of Charlie Manson. I think if any of you have any experience in jail, you know that jail is not a very nice place to be. And you have all kinds of different people on all kinds of different levels. And I have to deal with all those levels. I have to deal with every kind of psychotic maniac you got in the world trying to burn me up, trying to beat me up, trying to get some attention to get me in any kind of direction they can. Charles Manson was a convict. He spent most of his life in prison. And I visited him almost 200 times in prison, spoke to him on the phone hundreds of times. I really wasn't up on the 60s as much as you all make me out to be. I had just got out of prison. People came around me because I played a lot of music and I was fairly free and open because I really didn't know, honestly. Everyone says that I was the leader of those people, but I was actually a follower of the children because like, I never grew up. I've been in jail most of this time, so I stayed in the minds of the children. He has a different mind given his background and how he was raised, but there's nothing unsound about it. George Stimson is either the husband or the common law husband of Sandra Good, who was one of Manson's first followers in 1967. I've never met George Stimson, but I do know that he's an apologist for Charlie and he believes that Charlie was framed. There's a whole subculture of people who are fascinated with this case, and there are blogs and websites and books coming out all the time, and so that's the group that I find myself enmeshed. Each one of you is somebody. <clears throat> I'm nobody. I'm nothing. I'm now. I've been now all my life. My mother went to prison and left me and everybody's lied to me. Manson was a lifetime con artist who learned how to manipulate people in prison, because that's how you survive in prison. And he basically would kind of pick out people that seemed more vulnerable to, to becoming dependent on him. Many of the girls had bad relationships with their fathers, and he could pick that up and sense that and intuit it. A lot of the kids never met anybody who told them the truth. They never had anybody that was truthful to them, you know. So all I did was I was honest with a bunch of kids, and they would just come to me and say, we ain't got no place to stay. And I said, well, I ain't got no place to stay either. And they said, well, can we stay with you? I said, can you stay with me? They'd say, well, we want to be a family. I said, don't put no tags on my toes, man. Don't give them people nothing to identify with that they can come back and put me back in the penitentiary with. It's the Spawn Ranch. Manson used the remoteness to really separate his followers from not just their families and friends, but kind of reality in the real world. I set those people's minds back on the track with Jesus on a rebirth movement. Everybody at the ranch believed Manson was Jesus Christ. And then he used a lot of LSD and other drugs, but mostly LSD in his manipulation and mind control of these people and he would physically put double doses of LSD on their tongues when they'd have their nightly meetings, and he wouldn't do LSD when he was manipulating the group. Well, you see, I live in the underworld. You live in the overworld. I do a lot of things underworld that you guys don't see. Mm -hmm. I made about 75 albums in Vacaville, mm -hmm. and I bootlegged about three times more music than the Beatles put out. 
Charlie Manson definitely did want to be a rock star, and he came fairly close. Terry Melcher, the record producer, the Birds, the son of Doris Day, he actually auditioned Manson. He wrote a few songs, and I think what finally ticked him off completely was that Dennis Wilson and the Beach Boys stole one of his songs and put it on a record. Cease to exist. Just come and say you love me. Cease to exist. Come and say you love me. Melcher told me that he'd given Manson 50 bucks because he felt sorry for him. Manson used the money that he got from Melcher to say, well, Terry's giving me a contract. And of course, on one occasion, Terry never showed up. And Manson went angrily over to the Cielo Drive house to find him. And I think he was royally upset by the rejection. I'm bad. I'm as bad as I gotta be when it comes down. I deal. And I can deal from the bottom just as easy as I can deal from the top. And I cheat if it comes to where I need to cheat. And I steal if I need to steal. If I'm too hungry and I can't feel it any other way, I'll do whatever I can do to survive, just like I've always done. What was the one thing that happened that made Manson suddenly think, I will kill people? Was it when Terry Melcher said, no, you're not going to be signed by Universal? Was it when he heard the Beach Boys song that had stolen from his song? and felt that murder was the ultimate power trip. Do you feel any responsibility for the murders? Sure. Okay, could you elaborate briefly? I influenced a lot of people unbeknownst to uh, my own understanding of it. I didn't understand the fears of people outside. I didn't understand the insecurities of people outside. I didn't understand people outside. And a lot of things that I said and did uh, affected a lot of people in a lot of different directions. It wasn't intentional, and it definitely it wasn't uh, uh, with malice or forethought. Bugliosi argued that the murders were committed because the race war wasn't happening fast enough. And Manson got impatient and wanted to ignite the race war by framing the Black Panthers by leaving signs at the murder scenes. It took me a while to start thinking that Bugliosi was uh, not somebody to be trusted and had nefarious motivations. Vincent Bugliosi didn't need Helter Skelter to convict anyone except Charles Manson because absent Helter Skelter, there was no evidence of any criminal intent on Manson's part. As far as lining up someone for some kind of Helter Skelter trip, you know, that's the district attorney's motive. That's the only thing he could find for a motive to throw up on top of all that confusion he had. There was no such thing in my mind as Helter Skelter. Helter Skelter was a song and it was a nightclub. We opened up a little after-hours nightclub to make some money. Bulios, he was asked by journalists if he believed that Manson really believed in this crazy helter-skelter scenario. And he said that he didn't believe that, that he was convinced that the girls did, but that Manson was too smart. It was just something he used. Well. If he didn't send his followers to the house on Cielo Drive and then the next night the house on Waverly Drive to kill people to ignite a race war called Helter Skelter, then why did he do it? There is nothing more I can do outside of being dead to pay for this. I don't know that's what you wish. But I cannot take my own life. Miss Campbell, why don't you take a second and compose yourself?
On August 6th, 1969, family member Bobby Beausoleil was arrested for the murder of Gary Hinman. On the walls at the scene of Gary's murder were the words political piggy, and they were written in the victim's blood. Could Beausoleil's arrest have been the motivation for that famous blood-soaked murder spree that began two days later on Cielo Drive? More than 20 years after the fact, Patricia Krenwinkel opened up, spilling a flood of details about the killings of actress Sharon Tate and all four unsuspecting guests who had come to her home that fateful night. Patricia Kremwinkel was a sort of an ugly duckling of a girl. She never thought she was that attractive. Charlie immediately took her in hand, flattered her. He also made love to her and said what a beautiful woman she was. She was smitten. Nobody had ever said that before. When I met Mr. Manson, basically I fell in love with a man. I met him and it was he and I, and I thought I was falling in love with a man. Eventually, he started defining himself as a god. On Friday, August the 8th, he said to his family members, now is the time for Helter Skelter. And that meant that now was the time for murder and bloodshed to begin. The Tate-LaPiaca murders didn't happen in a vacuum. Manson wanted Beausoleil out of jail. The cops were holding Beausoleil for the Hinman murders. So he told Tex Watson, I want you to do something to get Bobby Beausoleil out of jail. I think that thesis was an opportunity to show the cops, you guys made a mistake. There were two other murders uh, with the similar blood written on the windows and on the doors and on the fridge. So Bobby Beausoleil, who's sitting in jail, could not conceivably have done the murders. Thinking about it, why should he set up two senseless murders in two days? Manson did it to, to dupe the cops. Prior to going to the residence, he asked you to go with, you, with your crime partners? Yes, he came in that out and then he told me to go and do whatever text said. He gathered some of his trusted followers, Susan Atkins, Patricia Kenwinkle, Tex Watson, and he told them that uh, he wanted them to go to the house on Cielo Drive, that he and Tex had been there before to a party when Terry Melcher and Candace Bergen lived there. And he told the girls to go out there and do something witchy. And they got the message. The victims were taken into the living room portion of the uh, residence where uh, the victim Sebring attempted to escape and was shot by crime partner Watson. Thereafter, uh, the other victims were uh, attacked and killed. One victim told her, ran out of the back door, and she was pursued by you. Is that correct? Yes, that's true. So what happened when you caught up to her? I stabbed her. In the back? Yes. How many times did you stab her? I have no idea. Or more than one time? Yes. And was she uh, talking to you or groaning, or what was she doing? She's saying stop. Atkins was inside having a Sharon Tate at knife point and Adkins looked her in the eye and, pardon my language, but said, look, I don't care about you. I don't care about your baby. You're gonna die and you better be ready for it. And I don't feel a thing about it. And then Adkins started stabbing her. 
It's, Mr. Manson, yeah. did you go to the residence no. after the murders? No. Um, and let me let me let me let me explain that to the board. The reason they want to say that is because they should have let me out of here three years ago. Because if I'm not on the on the, any scene of the crime, you can only keep me 18 years, and you've already had me 23. So I could sue you for uh, Hearst Castle, probably. Okay. I do believe that the people who inflicted the wounds are responsible for inflicting the wounds. But I don't know to to this day whether Charlie. Um, Order the murders of the Tate House. How do you feel now about what you know? It's grotesque. It's absolutely horrible. It's very difficult for me to live with the fact that I could do anything so horrible and so horrendous. I feel terrible about it, but I cannot change it. No matter what I do, I cannot change one minute of my life. And as I've said before, I don't expect the board to say that I can go home. I am paying for this as best as I can. I have, there is nothing more I can do outside of being dead to pay for this. And I know that's what you wish. But I cannot take my own life. I ran out of the bedroom and called to Tex. At that point, Tex turned me around and handed me a knife, and he said, do something. I went back in the bedroom, and I stabbed her numerous times in the back. The evening after the Tate murders, Manson family members killed two more random and innocent victims who lived nearby, Lino and Rosemary LaBianca. 19-year-old Leslie Van Houten was there. She was the daughter of a middle-class family and a homecoming princess, no less. So what would lead a teenager like this to participate in two vile and atrocious murders like that? In her 1993 parole hearing, Leslie started to talk. And soon, a flurry of details would weave together a picture of what the LaBiancas suffered through at 3311 Waverly Drive that awful night on August 9th, 1969. Ms. Van Houten, once again, we're going to be determining whether or not you're suitable for parole. Leslie, she was smart, she was attractive, and she was absolutely distraught because her parents had divorced. She got pregnant. Her mother forced her to have an illegal abortion, and they buried the fetus in the backyard. And not surprisingly, her drug use escalated. I started using drugs my, my junior year of high school. What kind of drugs were you using then? Marijuana, LSD, and benzodrine. And, and hashish. Not in the beginning, but it escalated. I took LSD a lot, and I liked it. She encountered Manson and Bobby Beausoleil in Haight-Ashbury. Manson says she should hang in with him, that they were going to do some interesting stuff. And she got in the bus. I think that I was absolutely intrigued and mesmerized by Manson. And I believe that he was someone very special and um, extraordinary. I felt that what we were doing was a mission that needed to be done. I 
felt that if they went again, that I wanted to go. I wanted to go and be a good soldier and surrender myself for what I believed in. But that evening, Charlie came up to me and asked me, did I believe enough to believe that I could go with them and that I could kill? Was I crazy enough to believe in him? And I said, yes. The LaBiancas were apparently just chosen at random. Manson actually had known the Sharon Tate house and knew that somebody famous lived there, but not the LaBianca house. We pulled up to the house. Manson went in the house. Manson apparently got in through an unlocked uh, patio door and got the drop on the LaBiancas. He told them that it was just going to be a robbery and that he wouldn't harm them. Manson came back out and he um, selected Pat and I to go in the house. And at some point, I remember him telling Watson that all of us were to do something. They told you all these trips about what I said and when I said it. How in the hell could you possibly know what I said to somebody uh, 25 years ago in the corner of when we were only talking to ourselves and I couldn't even remember what, the, what I said. I may have said just anything, but I know what I would say now, and I don't lie, so I know what I would say then, you know? And I certainly wouldn't tell nobody to go in and do nothing to anybody that I wouldn't want done to me. Charlie was in the LaBianca house, so he, he was a, a participant in the murder. Pat and I walked into the house, and Pat got a knife out of the kitchen. And we were told to take Mrs. LaBianca into the bedroom. And we could hear Mr. LaBianca being stabbed. You could hear it. You could hear the guttural sounds of him dying. And I tried to hold Mrs. LaBianca down while Pat stabbed her, and she hit her collarbone, and the knife bent. I ran out of the bedroom and called to Tex. At that point, Tex turned me around and handed me a knife, and he said, do something. I went back in the bedroom, and I stabbed her numerous times in the back. Then Krenwinkle went around the house. She wrote the word rise above the inside part of the front door on the living room wall, death to pigs. And then on the refrigerator, also in Lino's blood, helter skelter. I accept responsibility for what I did. And I have spent years learning to live with it, that as I sobered and grew away from Manson, living with my conscience and what I have done has been a very difficult thing for me. And I hope that you understand that. I also understand the horrendousness of what I did, that it's something that I live with every day. is the right to still be considered as one of the most cold-blooded female murderers in American history. More than 20 years after the Tate-LaBianca murders, the only thing between Patricia Krenwinkel and Leslie Van Houten's freedom was the California Board of Prison Terms. Oh, and the man who helped put them away in the first place. That would be Los Angeles Deputy District Attorney Stephen Kay. 
the man who was leading the charge to make sure those two women would never see the light of day. I was the first DA in California to attend a lifer parole hearing, and that was the Krenwinkel hearing in July of 1978. And I went to the hearing because I knew how dangerous these people were, and I didn't want them to be released on parole. When I showed up to Krenwinkel's hearing, she glared at me and said, what the f are you doing here? I ended up going to 60 parole hearings for the five Tate LaBianca murdered defendants. Mr. Manson said that uh, Ms. Krenwinkel was his complete reflection, that she was more like him than any other member of the family. Now, this is kind of a scary thought, isn't it, since we know about other members of the family. Has Patricia Krenwinkel earned your vote for parole suitability due to the fact that she's stayed out of trouble in prison and has now, uh, during the last two years, attended AA and NA classes and psychotherapy on a regular basis? I think the answer is definitely no. What she has earned is the right to still be considered as one of the most cold-blooded female murderers in American history. Krenwell was saying, oh, I was there and it was terrible. And Atkins was doing this and Watson was doing that. And I was just in shock. And I said, no, that's not, <laughs> that's not the, the case. She was a very active participant and participated in stabbing Abigail Fulcher to death. I feel like she has no memory. I think their crimes are bad enough that yes, they should stay in prison for the rest of their lives. Like my sister will stay in her grave for the rest of time and her baby and Abigail Folger, I'm sorry. Having a family member at the parole hearing is so vital. Patty came and she just gave a, a very emotional uh, speech from the heart about what it was like to be Sharon Tate's sister and what it had done to the family. And it just demolished the family even to the, this day. I don't want any chances. I don't trust her. I don't trust any of these people. I don't want them out. Ms. Krenwinkel, the panel has reviewed all the information received from the public and relied on the following circumstances and concluded that you're not suitable for parole. Uh, and with those unreasonable risk of danger to society and a threat to public safety if released from prison. Stephen Kay was the voice of the prosecution for many, many of these hearings for many years until he retired. And he himself had said during one time that I talked to him that he had, he anticipated that Leslie would get out, but he thought she would be an old lady by the time she did. You know, I can imagine as you're sitting there that you're probably very impressed with Leslie Van Houten and hearing her tell about the, uh, uh, the crimes. Uh, the, the problem is that she tends to shade things and, and she doesn't give you the uh, complete truth. She testified under my cross-examination at trial that up to the period when Krenwinkel went out to the murders, that she weighed and considered in her mind for two days the question of whether or not she could kill and would kill a bast. And she decided on her own that she could kill and that she would kill. And she made the decision to join the conspiracy before Manson or anyone else asked her to do that. Uh, I noticed that she didn't mention that today. Leslie should be out. She is a different person than she was back then. She never was the, the typical Manson person. She was in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
There is nothing more she can do to show that she has remorse. Ms. Van Houten, the panel reviewed all the information received from the public and relied on the following circumstances in determining that you're not yet suitable for parole and would pose an unreasonable risk or danger to others if you were released. She still to this day has a hard time understanding how she allowed this to happen to her. It wasn't like a light switch, it was a slow evolution. And once she got to the ranch, it was a hippie community. It wasn't a murderous cult. There's some audio tapes that I believe have possibly a lot of the answers to what happened, uh, why these crimes were committed, how they were committed. The Tex Watson tapes. Tex was in Texas, and he found out that there was a warrant for his arrest. So he went and got a lawyer, and he made these tapes for his lawyer, and they were protected by the attorney-client privilege. So he, he had no reason to lie. I believe that there's a description of Manson's control, the environment at the ranch, what happened during the murders, and what happened subsequent to the murders. I've heard about the tapes. I know that they're in the hands of LAPD under lock and key. I don't know what they say. I'd love to hear them. One of the hardest things for me is when I discuss my life with Manson, because I do take responsibility for what I did. At the same time, I was involved in a cult, and cults have cult leaders, and there's a lot more information now about cults than in the 60s. And at 19, I wasn't that strong of a personality to begin with. When she was with Manson and did the crime, she was 19 years old. She qualified as a youthful offender. So I need those, those tapes because I'm sure that they are going to at least, you know, describe some of that environment. Four times they have approved her for parole. I think she is not out because the governors, Jerry Brown and now Newsom, did not want to be the ones that let her out, that let out a Manson. Leslie Van Houten is a gray-haired old lady now. She's not a danger to society. We're going to challenge the fourth um, reversal of parole. Nobody's gotten such an unfair dealing as Leslie has gotten. Nobody. Okay. and I don't get a chance to get back up on top of this dream, you're going to lose all your money. Your farms ain't going to, be, ain't going to produce. You're going to, you're going to win, helter-skelter. You're going to win your reality. You're going to get everything that you want right from the pages of that court. While the Tate-LaBianca murders were beyond the pale and merciless, Charles Manson himself did not physically commit any of the murders. He directed them. So was it possible that the Board of Prison Terms could grant his parole? Once again, Los Angeles Deputy District Attorney Stephen Kay was on the front lines as the steadfast crusader hell-bent on keeping Charlie Manson locked up forever. Now, what has Mr. Manson learned in the 23, almost 23 years that he has been in prison for these uh, murders? In my estimation, Mr. Manson has learned nothing. He has no respect for authority. He has no respect for society or des desire to be part of it. And he has no remorse for directing the murder of any of these nine victims. I would respectfully ask the board to find Mr. Manson unsuitable for parole and to give him the maximum five-year denial. Charlie Manson threatened to kill me after one of his parole hearings. He said that he was gonna have me killed in the parking lot after the, uh, the hearing. 
uh, that I wouldn't make it to my car. And I said, well, okay, but I'll be back for your next hearing. If you want to give me a parole, I might consider taking that and letting you live in my world. If you deny my parole, you go off in your world. Don't come back in mine. When it comes time to being bad, he could be as bad as he has to be. But his main thing in life was he was going to survive. And he was going to do whatever he had to do to survive. If I'm not paroled, okay. and I don't get a chance to get back up on top of this dream, you're going to lose all your money. Your farms ain't going to, be, ain't going to produce. You're going to, you're going to win, helter-skelter. You're going to win your reality. You're going to get everything that you want, right from the pages of that court. That's going to be your reality, and you're coming. You're growing up, and you're going to be there just like you, just like you want him to be there. That's where he's coming, because that's what you're making for yourself. All right, we're, we're going to recess for deliberation. We'll call you back after we make a decision. Couldn't you imagine Charlie Manson moving into your neighborhood? <laughs> no. No, you wouldn't be a happy camper. The panel reviewed all the information received and relied upon the following circumstances in concluding that the prisoner is not suitable for parole and would pose an unreasonable risk of danger to society if released at this time. What I think is the biggest story is that these murders were very preventable. It's, it's not like Manson was under the radar. He committed crimes of car theft, rape, fraud. Um, he, he violated almost every term of his parole. And the law enforcement was aware of that. But every time that he got in, in trouble, he would get picked up. He was miraculously released. Eventually, I became convinced that there was a pattern and that Manson had a relationship with law enforcement, was providing them with something. Yeah, they offered me a place in uh, Valachi. Who was they? The FBI. What do you got to do with the FBI? Uh, you don't have nothing to do with the FBI. Nothing yes, is. I do. I was a barber in the federal penitentiary for 20 years. You need a snitch? Nope. That's the reason I didn't take the program. They've come to me two or three times. They want me to work and do different draw profiles. I'm not really an informant type guy. Manson, uh, you know, he came into a parole hearing one time with a, a black T-shirt with white skull and crossbones on, and uh, he menaces the board, and uh, he has a swastika on his forehead. So it's very different. Uh, I don't think that Manson uh, thinks that he has much of a chance uh, uh, to get out, and he just likes the forum to, uh, to talk and philosophize, and uh, the board members really don't ask him many questions or anything. They just let him talk. You say in your minds that I'm guilty of everything that you've got on paper. So therefore, it would run logic that I would need to have remorse for what you think is reality. They built whole penitentiaries in the fear that they generated off of this case so the public can feel safe against this monster. And it's OK if I have to spend my life in prison. You've medicated me, you've burnt me, you've beat me, you've stabbed me, you've done everything you can do to me, and I'm still here, and you're still gonna have to face the truth about this case sooner or later, if yeah, not here in the street. You've lost six generations of children to me because you won't pay me what you owe me. Because I didn't break no law. I didn't kill nobody. I didn't tell nobody to get killed. More than 50 years after the Tate-LaBianca murders, the story of Manson and his family continues to fascinate and terrify the public. Charles Manson was never granted parole. He died in prison on November 19, 2017, 
at 83 years old. I'm Ashley Banfield. Thanks for watching. There you have it, another fascinating case straight from the Court TV archives. You can watch the Manson family parole hearings in full and for free on the Court TV website. Just check the show notes for a link. And be sure to tune into my show, Closing Arguments, weeknights at 8 p.m. Eastern, where we take a deep dive into the biggest current true crime stories. Thank you so much for downloading. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.